2: Welcome to the show on this very, very cold Friday afternoon. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your lives, anything and everything. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car on this cold Friday, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands free. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Revelation chapter 12. And then on Sunday, we are back in the gospel of Mark. Uh, You can watch live stream at calvarysa.com if you are interested. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Go to church. Find somebody else that needs to be served or prayed for or loved on. And be the arms and the hands and the voice and the hug of God if you get the opportunity. Let's get to questions while we await your phone calls. You never know. Sometimes Fridays we get lots of calls. Sometimes Fridays we get no calls. So the first one is from Michelle. Michelle says, when the Holy Spirit is removed from earth, will there still be morals and laws, or will it be the Wild West, spiritually speaking? Um, Michelle, it'll be worse than the Wild West. When the Holy Spirit's removed, Jesus said, it would be like it was in the days of Noah. And so, I'm not sounding like I'm exaggerating here, but in the days of Noah, we're told that the that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's why the judgment of the flood. Every inclination, evil all the time. And only evil. There was nothing good. Well, when the Holy Spirit is removed, the, the church is going to be raptured from here. And the Holy Spirit, um, it's going to be the Wild West. You know, I grew up with movies like Wild in the Streets and those other kinds of movies where there was just un fettered rebellion everywhere. And that's pretty much the way it's going to be. Um, when the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation um, is trying to uh, sort of flex his muscles, um, he is going to meet all resistance uh, with death. He's going to, to clamp down on it as fiercely as he possibly can. Um, but, but believe me, there won't be anything other than the people on earth who are getting saved. Now, that's the one thing about the Great Tribulation that we can have hope for. And we need to share this with the people that we love. Um, people are going to get saved. The Holy Spirit is still going to be at work. He's just not going to be working his restraining power. So evil is going to get more evil. Now, Michelle, we live in a time where we've seen in, in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. We've seen... Uh, our nation changed so radically, so quickly, I mean, unbelievably fast. Um, and and it's going to be even far greater than this. Uh, so every inclination in man's heart was only evil all the time. That's what we have to look forward to during the Great Tribulation. So I hope that answers your question, Michelle. Thank you for listening. Here is a question anonymously. Um, Pastor Ron, why is it so difficult for Christians to accept alternative lifestyles? Um, Anonymous, it's it's, when you say accept, I'm assuming that you mean you want us to say they're okay. But they're not. They're not. Why would you want to accept an alternative lifestyle for somebody that you love? Why would you want to tell them it's okay when in fact the result of that would be an eternity spent in hell? See, here's the thing we've got to understand, and I don't think anonymous, and I, I don't know if you're a Christian, you, you, you're calling a Christian or listening to a Christian radio program, but compromise kills. When Christians begin to compromise, when we say, well, you know, let's live and let live, uh, the enemy wins. And compromise is an absolute killer. So it needs to be difficult for Christians to accept alternative lifestyles because we want people to go to heaven. We want people to find Jesus and to enable them to live a life that we know is going to result in them not inheriting the kingdom of God is not only the most unloving thing that we can do, it is to participate in their wickedness. And I just don't think enough of us in these last days anonymous I don't think that we understand the value of standing firm in our faith and what our faith teaches make no mistake that's why the Bible is being thrown out of so many churches it's because we don't like what it says we don't like the restraints that it places on us we want to sin and if everybody else is sinning well then we feel we're entitled to our share as well but that kind of compromise kills Keep this in mind. I said it before. When we compromise as Christians, when we sort of accept their sin and and sort of pat them on the back and say, Well, you know, if this is the way you want to live, it's okay. We'll stop calling it sin. Well, that's when the devil wins. And when the devil wins, of course, evil wins. And that's why it's so important. So Anonymous, probably, if you're a believer, if if you profess to be a Christian, you ought to be wondering why You even want to consider accepting a lifestyle that is contrary to what Jesus says we all need to live. Here is a question from Lisa. This is a difficult question. Uh, I have a question about generational Christians. My husband and I were raised in church and we love Jesus. Our children have accepted him and their lives demonstrate that their faith is real. How do we keep our younger ones engaged? Um, I if I get this sense of your question, Lisa, I'm thinking, you know, um, usually second, third, fourth, even fifth generation members of a family, um, you know, they got this seed of rebellion in them. And uh, I think the way you keep your kids engaged is, is be sure that you're going to a good church, a Bible teaching church. A good, solid Bible-teaching church. Make sure that you and your kids get involved in church. I just did a message a couple of weeks ago when I talked to our church about, uh, about families serving together. You know, there's nothing uh, that's going to cement a family together in the Holy Spirit more than serving the people Jesus loves. So it's really important that we understand that. It's not just going to church. And I think too many of us, we just think going to church is enough. But we need to be the church. And you raise your children that way. I think the thing you do at home is you engage them in honest conversation and honest Bible study. As a family, sit down together. We went on vacation this last summer. And one of the families that went with us, whenever it seemed in the morning, they had all the kids sitting around them and they were doing the family Bible study. And that's where kids can ask a question. That's where they can be equipped to deal with the world that's trying to drag them away from Jesus Christ. So you keep them engaged by keeping them involved. You give them the opportunity when you serve together, you give them the opportunity uh, to um, use the gifts that God has given them. And if you use, the, if they use the gifts God has given, they're going to experience the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit all the time. So what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that our children experience Jesus for themselves. They can't be uh, dependent upon mom and dad's faith. And this is very important. They need to make some choices. And they can't make, well, dad says this or mom says this. They have to make it because they love Jesus. So teach your children to love Jesus. Now, one of the ways that we can do that, Lisa, is to make sure that our walk with Jesus is fresh and vibrant. I'm talking you, you and your husband. Make sure that they see the fruit of the Spirit working in and through your lives. Are you kind at home? Is, is home a fun place to be? Do they see a mom and a dad who absolutely adore one another? Do they feel secure in that kind of love? If they know that your Jesus is real and benefits their lives, well, then, in fact, what's going to happen is they're going to see that your Jesus is worth having. And then when they have to start making the choices in their life, well, they're going to make the same choices that you made. So, Lisa, that's the best I can do on that. But I just think we've got to understand they need their own vibrant walk with Jesus. Let's go to Thomas Big T from San Antonio on line one. Thomas, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
1: Hello, Mr. Arval. How are you doing once again? Um, it's been a while since I called in. But anyway, I was just look, I'm I'm facing I'm being faced with the decision and all of us are, but some have to do it. Some. I mean, some, you know, they feel like they got to do it. Others, you know, they just anyway, it's the COVID-19 uh, vaccination. First time I'm I'm really, I got a scheduled appointment. Um, I mean, is this something that I should really consider doing, or is this something that you, I think you mentioned before, it's just a personal choice?
2: Yeah. Thomas, is this to keep your job? Thomas? I, I guess we lost Thomas. Thomas is listening on the radio, I guess. Um, you know, Thomas, this is, this is a decision that I can't make for you. Um um, this is something, uh, Romans fourteen twenty three says, anything not of faith is sin. Uh, I don't know your medical history. Um, if, if it were me, I would talk to my doctor and I would ask him what his recommendation is. Uh, and then I would take this matter to prayer. Now, the other thing I would say is, is don't rush to do it because uh, there was uh, the vaccine mandates were, were just argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, This morning, and a decision is going to be coming out, I think, in the next couple of days relative to um, the constitutionality of the vaccine mandates. Um, Do not quit your job. I mean, if you decide not to get the vaccination, do not quit your job. Be a good employee. Don't complain. Don't do anything. If they fire you, let them know that you're sorry to go, that you wanted to keep your job. I think there's going to be um, some, some pretty solid legal standing that people are going to have. I know Christian lawyers who have assured me there is going to be a tidal wave of litigation from people who have lost their jobs. So... Um, I really can't say for sure, Thomas, uh, what you ought to do, Uh, but I think I will say this, and this is my opinion, and I've stated it on this program before. I think it is absolutely horrific that we live in a country where our medical care is being determined by a government that certainly does not have our best interests at heart. So f- from my perspective, Thomas, this is a tough choice. Uh, we, we, we've, we've got to serve the Lord. We've got to, to, to have a job to feed, provide for our families. Uh, but what I would tell you to do is don't do anything quickly because I think things are about to change. I think the temperament in this nation is quickly moving away from um, these mandated vaccines. Thomas, I see you're back on the line. Does that answer your question?
1: Well, yeah, and, and they're not forcing me. They're not forcing me, on, but, uh, uh, you know, they did mention it, but they don't keep mentioning it and mentioning it. It's just that, okay. I don't know, I just saw some of the medical data. Di-
2: yeah, you know, Thomas, I think that the medical, uh, uh, the, the, the numbers of people, and in particular men, who are having heart difficulties as a result of taking the shots and then the boosters? Uh, I think the numbers of those men is cause for concern, and and um, I, I I would be very upfront about it, very respectful, but but I would just let them know if they ask that it's a decision that you haven't made yet, and then continue to be a worker that they don't want to lose. Uh, And again, I think that that we're going to see some information that's going to come out. I think you're probably going to see a 5-4 decision on this issue um, coming out of the Supreme Court. But that was just argued today, and we'll see what it goes from there. God bless you, Thomas. Thanks for calling. It's good to hear from you. I uh, need to know you guys are out there, and you're okay if I don't hear from you for a while. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Daniel. He says, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, I want to know, how do we examine our hearts? Um, Daniel, uh, when Paul writes this, this is so important. Um, we're to examine our hearts daily, he said, to see whether or not we're in the faith. Now, that doesn't mean, that's not a reference to whether or not we're saved. That's not the issue. But the idea is, are we walking with Jesus? Are we in the will of God? And I think the way we examine our hearts is relative to the description of what a Christian life should be like when we're, um, when we're walking with Jesus. Um, uh, you know, if you're troubled about something, you want to say, okay, Lord, examine my heart. You know everything. I, I'm always both comforted and discomforted at the same time. Uh, by the fact that Jesus, it says in the gospel several times, he knew what was in the hearts of men. And because Jesus knows what's in your heart, it's better to be honest with him about what's in our heart. And if I'm, uh, if my life isn't filled with joy, then I've got to examine my heart and get to a place where I can say, Lord, where's the joy? Where did it go? David, after repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, uh, he said, Lord, Um, um, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, renew within me a right spirit. So one of the things that you need to be honest about, and, and maybe Daniel, if you're married, you can ask your wife, is my life, does it appear to be joyful? Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is my strength. So is my joy evident to others? If it's not, then you can Repent. And you can make a a, a correction. I think another example, do you love God's Word? It is, as a pastor, Daniel, it is frustrating to me, uh, unbearably so at times. It's frustrating to me how many Christians don't have a hunger, I mean a deep hunger for God's Word. I, I don't, I just, we cannot survive the onslaught of this world unless we're men and women committed to and in love with the Word of God. And so if I'm examining my heart, I'm going to say, okay, Lord, uh, why don't I long for your Word? And then we can say, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to hear from you every day. I need to hear your Word. And we can be in the Word of God. Another example, Daniel, is um, a, a hunger for fellowship. You know, Christians love to be around other Christians, and we need to hunger for fellowship. We need to have a desire for serving. Uh, Another source of heartbreak for me is people who um, just come to church. I mean, they just come. They sit for the hour and 20 or 30 minutes that we're here, but that's all they do. They just come, and then they leave, and then they come again the next week. Now, don't Misunderstand. I appreciate everybody and love everybody, but they're the ones who are missing out. If we're not hungering for fellowship and for serving the Lord who served us, then that's an occasion for us to examine our hearts. And the purpose of the examination is to say, why is it like that, Lord? You ought to love church. Sunday ought to be the highlight of of your week, you know, I remember before I got saved, and I would ask people, "So what would you do on the weekend?" People would say, "Oh, we went to church, I'd think, "Oh man, why did you do that?" But now, of course, I can't imagine missing church, not just because I'm the pastor, but just because this is where, this is where God uses us. This is where we get strong in the Lord and, and where we can minister to, to people that He loves. And so often we look at church like a religious checklist thing. Okay, Lord, I went to church. But you had to love going to church. Here's a hard one, Daniel. If you're holding unforgiveness towards other people, you need to be honest instead of saying, Lord, well, you know why I can't forgive them. You need to say, Jesus, you forgave me of everything. Why does this unforgiveness plagued me why am I in bondage to unforgiveness and I think that's Paul's intent when he talks about examining your hearts continually the fruit of the spirit does it characterize your life love are you a loving person joy we talked about that peace Is your life at peace? Are you freaking out over all the things that other people in the world who don't know Christ are freaking out over? Well, if that's the case, you need to sit down and say, Jesus, show me why that's in my heart. Patience. Are you a patient person? Kindness and gentleness. Now, typically, especially men, Daniel, we don't think about those things. But if you're not gentle and if you're not kind, then you're not with Jesus. It's that simple. And so those are the things. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Read that list. And honestly examine your heart. And now, when the Spirit of God puts his finger on something, know you are you are holding on to unforgiveness. Know you're not kind uh, to people all the time. Those are the times when we need to repent. Then, like David, we can say, renew within me a right heart, Lord, a right spirit. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And then it will come back. And when it comes back, you no longer will have that situation, you know, where you're thinking, uh, okay, something's wrong. The enemy won't be able to to condemn you. And um, uh, the joy of your walking with Jesus, Daniel, will reoccur. That I can promise you. Thank you for the question. three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We're inside about four minutes now, I think, for this half of the program on this Friday show. Marcus says, what does it mean to be chosen by God? Does it mean you can be unchosen? Well, Marcus, God chooses us. Romans eight twenty nine, and 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, first few verses, say that we are chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. So here's what that means. It means that God knows, of course, he knows everything, but God knows those of us who are going to choose him. Uh, When I was born a hundred years ago, God knew that I was going to choose him on that February day in 1991. He knew I was going to be his. Romans 8, 29 says that God set his love on me, even though I tried to change his mind, even though I, I, I certainly didn't love him, um, but I couldn't change his mind. He set his love on me, and that's why he chose me. He didn't choose me because I'm special. He didn't choose me because he thought he needed me. He chose me because he knew I was going to choose him. That's what it means to be chosen by God. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift to, to think about, to contemplate. Now, that doesn't mean he can unchoose you, because that would be contrary to his nature. Our God is a God who changes not. What that means is, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God guarantees our inheritance. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, We're told in Revelation, in one of the letters to the churches, he will never blot out our names from Jesus' book of life, the Lamb's book of life. So, uh, to be chosen is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. But God never unchooses because God only chooses those he knows who are his. Now, here's the problem, I think, Mark, is for a lot of us. Uh, there, there are periods of time in our lives, and some for some people, there are extended periods of times where we sort of, by the way we live our lives, we unchoose God. It's one of those things where, where we decide, well, I'm tired of waiting on God, or I'm tired of denying myself this pleasure, or that that particular sin, and we go ahead and do it. We call it backsliding because we don't want to say we're sinners, but but, but we live our lives so God is un- or, uh, so we've unchosen God. And then people say, well, are they really saved? Well, if they ever were saved, they are saved. And if they are saved, they can't be unchosen. But here's what I can tell you, Marcus, is that when God chooses you, no matter what you do, if you walk away from him and and you're really his, he's going to make your life miserable. There's going to be a lot of pain, just a ton of pain in your life. And he's going to do that because he loves you. That's the discipline of God, and he disciplines those he loves. And I have seen over my years here at Calvary Chapel, a lot of people resist God, walk away from God, completely rebel against him. And then when things got really, really impossible for them, they came back home like the prodigal son. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your live calls and questions. 340 9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life, We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585. And we'd love to have any questions or comments that you have. Here's one from Nacho from our email um, side. Pastor Ron, I was reading Acts 2 and got to the part of the fellowship of believers in verses 42 through 47, and two things hit me. I realized that the new church would probably not have met at the temple for very long, and probably had to break up into smaller home churches we hear about. Would that be true? Uh, With that in mind, I'm assuming that most of the 120 who received the Holy Spirit initially would be the first pastors. So God already planned the church to break up into smaller fellowships. I mean, getting 3,000 members in one day... They just could not meet in the same place at the same time for very long, especially when the Jews would eventually start to push back on Christianity. Uh, and then he says this, my other point is what a wonderful thought thinking of the whole church back then coming together in fellowship, getting in the word, praying and being there for each other. The fellowship must have been so sweet. Sure, would like to see more of that in our modern church today. I would, too. Nacho for sure. A couple of things, and I think we have sort of a a romantic idea about what the first century church was like. Um, They hung together. Uh, Remember, the church was entirely Jewish at the beginning, and Jewish families expelled um, the the members of their families who became Christians. Uh, Sons, daughters, um, spouses, it didn't matter. If a Jew deserted Judaism and became a Christian, they were written off. Uh, Literally, they held funerals for them and treated them as they were dead. So what happened at the beginning was there were a whole bunch of um, homeless people. It'd be like they were immigrants. They They were no longer welcome in their homes or by their families. And so they had to be together just for survival. And I actually believe that they would go out into the wilderness places and and uh and and have like our homeless encampments now. I think they would take care of one another and they would provide for one another. We remember Barnabas coming in and laying money at the feet of the apostles, do with this as you would. And and, and they they really did care for one another. That was Christian love in action. So uh the camaraderie, the, the unity, the oneness there uh, nacho, was a result of them not really having any choice. Now, they didn't get to meet at the temple. Jews who became Christians would be excluded from the temple. They could go into the outer courts, and that's you'll see the, the apostles who were going out in the outer courts, and they're doing miracles, and they're proclaiming the Word of God. They were doing that at the risk of their lives. So um, uh, it was just a matter of survival, Um, You know, we've got the story of the Apostle Paul, a tent maker, and he would hook up with um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila because they, too, were tent makers. And, And that's just the way the body worked. And they really did have one another's back. Now, as to breaking up into smaller home churches, of course, God knew that was going to have to happen, but they would break up and meet wherever they were, wherever they could um i'm sure in those encampments they would have um larger bible studies and smaller bible studies people would would join together with like minded like hearted people um just because of the comfort when paul's missionary journeys began that's when the the, the house churches really began to take off because there were no alternatives they didn't have access to the public areas where there was a lot of room to meet. You know, we can go rent a place. They couldn't. And in, in fact, in a lot of those cases, they had to meet um, in hiding because the Christians would be persecuted by, by Jewish authorities and sometimes by Roman authorities. So it was an absolutely brutal, fearful lifestyle. There was nothing romantic about it. Uh, house churches and house Bible home Bible studies weren't anything at all like we have now. So um, they had no one, nothing but God to hold on to, and believe me, they held on to Him, and He held on to them. So um, that was what what was going on in the in the in the early church. Um, regarding your thought about. The Church coming together in fellowship and getting into the Word and prayer and being there for each other um, we can't even begin to imagine how sweet the fellowship was we can't begin that 's the way it was always supposed to be, and we lost that we lost that we lost it when church became institutionalized, we lost it when church became nationalized in the fourth century um Uh, We certainly haven't regained it, haven't found it here. But I can tell you that this is the way it's always supposed to have been. The church is a family. We're the family of God. We're supposed to act like family. And too often, we act like the most dysfunctional family in the world. Uh, When you find a church where the love for fellowship, the love for brothers and sisters is palpable, you can feel it, that's the church that you don't want to miss out on. Great thoughts, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Sheila. Um, for the Christian, what is the biggest problem in or with people who have transgender lifestyles? Um, Sheila, you know, we, we, we have a tense, again, relative to the other question we had about compromise earlier. Um, We have a tendency to think, well, you know, what they do is up to them. It's none of my business. But this is an attack by the devil on God himself. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, I think it's verse 27. I don't know why I'm having a hard time getting my cursor where it goes. Uh, Yeah, verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, man created them Male and female, he created them. Now, this is and and the, the the unbelievable speed at which this has taken hold. Right now it is an unthinkable thing to say publicly that a person who says, Well, I'm a man, even though my body's female, or I'm a woman, even though my body's male. It's unthinkable to go out right now. You would be blasted and canceled and could lose jobs and, and everything else to say, nope, he's a he and she's a she because that's the way God made them. Unthinkable. And yet it is the most logical thing in the world. Why? Because this is the devil's attack on us being made in the image of God. He's casting um the The question again is God good? Does God really love you? Why would you be in this situation? This is an attack of the of the 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 most aggressive kind on the character and the nature of God and who we are as his people. This is humanity saying, We will not have you be king over us That's what they said about Jesus. And we're saying the same thing. Well, you made me biologically male, but I feel like female, so I'm going to do that. We're we're, we're mocking God himself. And the world around us is saying that's a good thing. And this is an area where Christians have got to take a stand and we've got to say we're simply not ever going to compromise on this. You know, Paul and I are watching. We watch Jeopardy. We're watching Jeopardy, and and now I think the fourth or fifth longest champion uh, in their history is on, and it is a man who is a woman who says he's a woman. Um, um, You know, you can see his beard growing uh, at the end of the day. You can, you can. I mean, he's you just—it's a man. and, and it's, it's, you, we can't be happy for him. He can say he's a woman, but that doesn't change his biology. That doesn't change his DNA. Gender doesn't change. And the fact that somebody says, but, but I identify as a woman. Well, I identify as a six foot, ten inch NBA basketball player, but no NBA team is ready to sign me see, we've got to be honest about people and who they are. I just saw a news story today. Um, The Ivy League and the University of Pennsylvania, Penn U, uh, is supporting a a man who was a a collegiate swimmer. Um, He calls himself Leah. I can't remember the last name now. Um, But um, um, they're, they're supporting him and his right to perform as a woman. The problem is he's winning races by more than 45 seconds. He's shattering records. Again, he was a competitive male swimmer at the university Division one university level. This guy is good. And suddenly he says he's a woman, and now he's breaking records. And all of the other female swimmers, the truly female swimmers, are unwilling to say anything because they know that they're going to be canceled, they could lose their scholarships. It's not the politically or socially correct thing to do. And yet women's sports is being destroyed by this nonsense. So those are the problems. It's not real. You know, I love my children. My children have uh, an identity... They think they're something and they're not. My job as their father is to say, no, we have to be real about this. And nobody's doing that. My last thought on this, Sheila, is, you know, years ago, uh, and I can go all the way back to 2015 when transgenderism was just sort of, uh, um, you know, an afterthought. Um, Homosexuals were given the right to marry by the United States Supreme Court. And I said, predictably, that, well, now that the government is blessed, it you're going to see the exponential increase in this. It's not that more people are, are, are gay. It just gives us the right to rebel against God. And I remember saying, you know, I could never understand why the homosexual community... Attached their cause with the transgenders because nobody, and I said this, nobody's ever going to accept that a biological male is a female or a biological female is a male. How wrong I was, Sheila. That's the power of the devil. And these lifestyles are simply evil to the core, a rebellion against God and the authority of God in our lives. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Willie. Are babies born sinners and will they go to heaven if they die young? Um, Willie, I had a similar question uh, earlier this week. Uh, yes, they're born sinners. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, says that, that uh, we are born condemned already. So yes, uh, babies are born sinners. And anybody who's had a baby in their house knows that's true. Um, But the answer is, yes, they will go to heaven if they die young, if they die before they're accountable. Because while they're born sinners and that sin nature is with them, they're not accountable to God to do anything about their sin nature because they don't have any awareness of it. So, yes, they're sinners. Our flesh is flesh. They're born with a sin nature. Um, But until we're accountable, remember, God is fair and God is just. And babies before the age of accountability, children before the age of accountability, people with mental incapacities who, who, who uh, are, are, are not accountable before God, um, when people die, those people are going to go right into the presence of Jesus. God is only going to judge people on the basis of what they did with what they knew. A baby doesn't know anything yet. So, yes, Willie, they're born sinners, but they will go to heaven if they die young. And uh, I have a baby brother uh, died at 20 days uh, old, and I will see him for the first time in heaven. Uh, Ricky Allen is his name, and I can't wait to meet my brother. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Will humans literally go missing in the rapture or will their bodies be left behind? Um, anonymous, there's there's differences of opinion on this. I believe very strongly that uh, we'll just go missing. Um, our bodies are going to be transformed um, like, like a, uh, a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. Um, the, the butterfly doesn't stay behind. Our bodies are aren't going to stay behind, I think in that that instant, that twinkling of an eye, uh, we will be changed. It doesn't say we're going to shred these old bodies or, or shed these old bodies, rather, but, but but that we will be changed and we'll meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and I think that, that demands that we leave these old bodies, but the bodies burned up in that instant, so uh, there won't be bodies left behind. I think... Uh, as you've seen um, in, in movies, uh, left behind things. And um, I think we'll we'll leave the trappings, the clothes, shoes. Uh, I think if we're in a car, um, we'll be taken out of that car. But um, um, I, I think that's going to be part of the consternation of the world. What happened to them? Where did they go? If there were just bodies left behind, carcasses left behind, I don't think anybody would, would be wondering about what happened. I mean, it would be, well, why is this happening? And uh, But but uh, I think we're going to go instantly in the presence of the Lord, and our bodies will be just gone. So that's the best we can do, because there's no real definitive answer for that. Regina says, oh, this is sad. Regina says, Pastor and I've been divorced, and my current church won't let me serve. What should I do? Regina, you should find another church, period. You are in a church... That is legalistic, uh, a church that doesn't understand grace, a church that doesn't understand love and bearing with one another's burdens um, uh, at all. So you should find another church. Um, I don't know how many people in my church have been divorced, but I'm like every other church, so it's a lot. And uh, imagine not being able to use the gifts that God has given you simply because you made a mistake. Now, even if your divorce was unbiblical Paul says the consequences for divorcing unbiblically is you must remain unmarried doesn't say you can't serve in church so um, um, I think you need to find another church, find a healthy well balanced uh, Bible teaching, Bible loving church Um, and and what you're going to find is that everybody that comes to that church, if you were to come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio you could look around and say, hey, everybody here is as messed up as I am. Praise the Lord. And you can use the gifts that God has given you. So I'm sorry that uh, that your church is treating you that way. That's not rightly representing Jesus. One comment I will make, Regina. There are people that we will not let serve if they are in unrepentant sin. Uh, we don't want... I mean, this is the house of God. We want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit cannot be um, with somebody empowering somebody who's in unrepentant sin. And so, what we do is we will we'll tell somebody if you're if you're not going to get right with God, then you can't serve here. And typically, they end up leaving the church mad. Uh, but but that's the way it is. So we've had to ask people to step away from ministry over the years. And um, almost always they get angry. You're judging me? No. You just can't live like this. And so when we find out about people who are serving, uh, who are living in unrepentant sin, we try to deal with it. But divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce doesn't mean that you're, you're, you know, you've sort of got your, your scarlet D on your chest, um, a reference to Heather Prynne um, and her scarlet A. Uh, but find another church, Regina. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Teresa asks, "How can we know who is chosen by God to believe?" Um, Teresa, we can't really know for sure. That's why we're supposed to tell everybody. That's what the parable of the sower is all about in Matthew chapter thirteen. It is the foundation parable of all the parables. Jesus actually shared the parable, gave the definition of the parable, and he told his disciples how we understand any parable if you don't understand this one. So he told them. And the seed, you remember, is the Word of God, and it's supposed to be scattered liberally, generously, everywhere we go. And nowhere are we told to worry about what type of soil that seed lands on. Now the soil, of course, represents the condition of human hearts. The seed, Jesus tells us, is the Word of God. So we spread it around. We tell everybody about the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, whether or not they're chosen, we're going to find out that's up to God. But remember, God chooses those he knows are going to choose him, him back. So since we can't know who's chosen, we're to tell everybody. And that's our responsibility before, before God. So don't worry about who's chosen, who's not chosen. Teresa, if you're hanging out in a Reformed church or a Calvinist church, um, you you might want to look at a different perspective. Because if you will do that, I think what you're going to find is um, a lot more joy, a lot more activity on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the question, Regina. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron, can you please help me understand... What Jesus means in Luke 11, 24-26, what does it mean for the man to be swept and in order? And why would the spirit be able to come back and bring seven spirits more wicked than him? Let me read the verses, Anonymous, and then we we'll, will all deal with the question. Uh, Jesus speaking, he's talking about people possessed by demon spirits. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now uh, Jesus gives us the answers here for for what he means um, uh, when it says that um, the 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 the, uh, the host the the body the heart. Of the uh, of the formerly demon possessed person, um, there's a, for for reasons that aren't explained. Uh, demon spirits do not like to be disembodied. Um, remember, they begged Jesus, uh, two thousand of them at least, begged Jesus to let them go into the herd of swine. Don't cast us into the outer spaces, into the arid spaces. Um, and and Jesus let them go. Um, so, uh, evidently there's no rest. Um, why they don't like to be disembodied, I don't know, but they want to, they want to host a home and it says if they don't, um, find rest out there, uh, they go back to the house from which it was cast. Now, uh, I've cast demons out occasionally anonymous from people and the only condition under which I'll do it. Uh, and uh, this is not a, 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 a normal thing, so I don't want to give the wrong impression. But uh, when, when I encounter somebody who's demon-possessed, and they will not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I don't cast the demon out because I don't want them to be cast out. I mean, I could do that, and there might be temporary relief, but I also know that according to what Jesus said, they're going to go find seven other spirits and bring them back to the person. I may get a temporary victory and I can puff my chest out and say, wow, we, we beat those demons. And I'm, I'm speaking figuratively because nobody wants to mess with demons. But w- when the demon comes back and has seven other spirits, we know that Mary Magdalene was inhabited by seven demons. So evidently she had a demon. That demon was cast out and they went and got others and they came back in. And things got worse. So I won't cast the demon out unless I can get the host of the demon. And Jesus always gives me that that, that few moments of lucidity. Um, If they won't accept Jesus Christ, then I don't cast the demons out. That's what it means. This is just the life behind the scenes in the spirit world. Demons will come back. You throw them out. They'll come back if they find that Jesus isn't living in there. That's what the house being swept means. If Jesus doesn't live in there, greater is he who is innocent, he who is in the world. If Jesus isn't living in that host, they're going to come back and make things far worse, seven times greater than it was before. So that's what he means, Anonymous, and that's why he gave that instruction. Good question. Thank you very, very much. How am I doing on time? Just Nope. So oh, maybe time for one more question. Here is a question from... Vince, he says, I'm a Christian, but my conscience doesn't bother me when I'm doing stuff I know is wrong. Should I be worried about my salvation? Vince, I would ask you, if you came to our church, what makes you think you're a Christian? If your conscience doesn't bother you when you know you're doing things wrong, I can promise you the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. So, yeah, you should be terrified about your salvation because you don't own it. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Shall we go on sinning because where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds? No, God forbid, we're told. So the idea is if if the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're doing something wrong, there's going to be that check in your spirit. If you can, for instance, do drugs or get drunk or you can have sex with people you're not married to and you think, well, it's no big deal. Nothing is wrong. I mean, that's that's Okay. Then, then you simply don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. You can hope you're saved, but hoping won't get you anything at all. Hey, I appreciate the audience today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful weekend serving the Lord. Remember, go to church and be used by God to be a blessing to somebody else. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back next week. We'll see you then.